Welcome to another podcast of U.S. History Repeated. We continue our presidential series with our third president, Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence. He was a controversial figure because of his involvement with slaves on his Virginia plantation, and we'll delve into some of that as well. Lots to cover here, including the doubling in size of the country with the Louisiana Purchase. As always, I'm going to turn this over to our resident history expert, Jean Anzanakis. Jean Ann. Thomas Jefferson is one of those historical figures that has a very complicated legacy. He did great things, but he was also someone whose ideologies didn't always match his actions. A man of great contradictions, great achievements, and horrible atrocities, like Many white Southern land-owning men at the time, Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner. In this podcast, we will cover both sides to this man, the good and the bad. Thomas Jefferson was born in 1743 in Virginia. He was the eldest son of a wealthy planter. He inherited 5,000 acres of land in his teens. He would eventually build Monticello at the site and designed both the house and gardens himself. He would consistently remodel and expand the home over the, cost, uh, over the course of his life. He attended the College of William and Mary in Virginia and briefly practiced law. He was a member of the Virginia House of Burgesses and a member of the Continental Congress. He met and married Martha Wales Skelton. Martha Jefferson was a wealthy uh, woman and as a result of their marriage he inherited her family's wealth and slaves one particular slave sally hemmings who was martha's half sister martha and thomas jefferson had six children but only two survived to adulthood history and dna evidence suggests that thomas jefferson fathered more children with sally hemming but we will get into that in more detail a little later on in the podcast. Thomas Jefferson is most widely known for writing the Declaration of Independence. And if you listened to our previous podcast, we mentioned how both John Adams and Benjamin Franklin also aided in the writing of that document. Jefferson was heavily influenced by Enlightenment thinkers, and many of their ideas are expressed in the Declaration, and later on in the Constitution. Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence in 17 days. The original document was picked apart and changed by other members of the Continental Congress, but Jefferson's main ideas remained. The concept of all men are created equal was a revolutionary idea. Rest assured, he meant white men only, but the idea that men without property and without wealth were equal was a revolutionary idea. The document was debated for two days and a number of revisions were made. Thomas Jefferson also served as the governor of Virginia, and during the revolution, when the British invaded the area, Thomas Jefferson retreated and left Monticello. It was an accusation of cowardice that followed him for some time and something that always angered him when people brought it up. 
He served as minister to France from 1785 to 1789. Martha Jefferson died in 1782 during childbirth, so he spent this time in France, and it was a great help to him. He wasn't as well-liked in France as his predecessor, Benjamin Franklin, but he loved architecture, art, the rich classical history that France provided. He loved French cuisine and had French chefs teach his slaves how to cook French cuisine. One of those slaves was James, the brother of Sally Hemings. He was appointed the first Secretary of State by George Washington, and he served in the cabinet alongside Alexander Hamilton, who he was constantly at odds with politically. Again, you know, Thomas Jefferson is a Democratic Republican, Hamilton, uh, Adams are Federalists. These tensions would ultimately lead to his resignation as Secretary of State. Thomas Jefferson was asked to run for president after George Washington stepped down after two terms. He narrowly lost the election of 1796 to John Adams and as a result became vice president. He was of a different political party than Adams. It was a recipe for disaster. Thomas Jefferson ran for president in the election of 1800 and defeated John Adams. The election was rather dramatic and no candidate got the necessary votes needed in the Electoral College, so it went to the House of Representatives where it took dozens of ballots to elect the third president. The Democratic-Republicans used the lack of unity within the Federalist Party to their advantage. Thomas Jefferson was president and Aaron Burr was vice president. John Adams was so infuriated he refused to stay for Jefferson's inauguration. Before Adams left office, he attempted to appoint as many Federalist judges as possible. Not all of the appointments were delivered before Jefferson's inauguration could take place, and it ultimately led to the Supreme Court case Marbury versus Madison in 1803. This court case would give the Supreme Court its main source of power, the power of judicial review. This event would lead these two former friends to not speak for many years. The election of 1800 is also known as the Revolution of 1800. It was the first time power was peacefully transferred from one political party to another. The challenges created by this election led to the passage of the 12th Amendment to the Constitution in 1803. It required that the Electoral College vote separately for the president and for the vice president. And it took away that possibility of having a president and a vice president of different political parties, each of these people who had been vying for the same position. You will see a consistent theme when it comes to Jefferson. His principles don't often match up with his actions as president. Jefferson envisioned a United States consisting of small farms. He feared a rigid class system similar to that of England. 
and he feared it would emerge if we didn't support a United States of small farms, the yeoman farmer. Thomas Jefferson believed in this natural aristocracy. Through elections, people will rise up to their rightful positions. The people will recognize the innate talents and the virtues in those meant to rule. Jefferson is a strict constructionist, yet he uses the elastic clause to purchase the Louisiana Territory. Again, the elastic clause allows the federal government to stretch its powers. It allows the federal government to do things that are necessary and proper that aren't specifically named in the Constitution as being a power or a right of the federal government. Republican agrarianism is often thrown around when talking about Jefferson. Both yeomen and big planters united behind this philosophy. It created an opposition to northern merchants and bankers. Again, we're seeing these sectional feelings taking root so early on in American history. As president, Thomas Jefferson served two terms, 1801 to 1809, and he had to deal with a number of domestic issues during his terms in office. One of them was the repeal of the Alien Act. Once again, it made it five years to become a citizen. The rest of the acts were simply allowed to expire and weren't renewed. The exception is the Alien Enemies Act, which was kept on and changed to include women. That, that law is still on the books today. The Enabling Act of 1802, it set procedures for Western lands to be organized into territories and eventually states. Probably one of the more famous events during his presidency is, of course, the Louisiana Purchase of 1803. And this was something that was of conflict to him because he didn't believe that he had the right to do this, but they were able to use the Elastic Clause to purchase the Louisiana Territory. The port of New Orleans was of great importance for frontier farmers to trade along the Mississippi River. Originally, they were just looking to purchase the port from France. Napoleon, who was busy fighting wars in Europe, needed money and agreed to sell not only the port, but the entire Louisiana territory for $15 million. This created a personal dilemma for Jefferson because he was a strict constructionist. He didn't like the idea of a strong central government to begin with. It was Jefferson that pushed for the addition for a Bill of Rights to be added to the Constitution in his writings to James Madison. The Constitution didn't give the president the right to add territory to the United States. Jefferson wanted an amendment passed that would allow for that to happen, but there wasn't enough time to get that done. Nevertheless, the territory was purchased using the elastic clause in the Constitution, which allows the federal government to do things that are necessary and proper. Politically, this caused division. Federalists, for the most part, opposed the purchase. Republicans tended to favor it because it would weaken the power of the northeastern states and it would provide more land for those yeoman farmers and planters. Now, France didn't have many permanent settlements in this territory 
in this territory. French settlers came as mostly fur trappers and traders. When the area was given to Spain, they didn't develop the territory either. So in 1801, when France regained control over the territory, this made the United States government concerned. We needed a port to trade along the Mississippi River. The difference now for that region was that Americans planned to and did settle west. This would lead to increased tensions with Native Americans and the continued decrease of their population and eventual end to their way of life as they knew it. In 1804, Jefferson requested an expedition into this new territory. This became known as the Lewis and Clark Expedition. It lasted from 1804 until 1806, and Lewis and Clark, along with 45 others, traveled westward, uh, westward, taking copious notes and making extensive drawings and maps and brought, brought back samples of all of the things that this great wilderness had to offer. We purchased this for $15 million. Now, what was there, right? The goals were simple. See what's out there. Can we trade with Native American groups out west? And is there a water route to trade with the Pacific? The Embargo Act of 1807 was an attempt to prevent war. In response to Britain and France seizing American merchant ships and to stop the impressment of sailors, impressment of sailors was the taking of American sailors on ships, bringing them back to Europe and forcing them to fight in European wars. At this point in time, the, the Napoleonic Wars are raging in Europe as Napoleon attempts to create his vast empire. An embargo or stop in trade with foreign ports was passed in the hopes of preventing war. This did not have the intended impact and it hurt the American economy and merchants more than it hurt Britain and France. War would eventually break out between Britain and the United States just a few short years later in 1812. The United States continued to have issues in the waters along the Barbary Coast. Um, for those of you who are not historically inclined, we are talking about areas such as Algiers, Tunis, Morocco, Tripoli. These areas demanded tribute from foreign countries in order to allow that country's merchant ships to trade without issues. Think of, you know, pirates, right? The Pasha of Tripoli demanded a higher tribute and felt he was being paid less than other leaders in the region were. The Pasha declared war on the United States and the U.S. enacted an embargo of the area and peace, you know, eventually settled. The tribute would continue to be paid to Barbary pirates for a few more years. Another thing that occurred during his presidency was the end of the international slave trade in 1807. Slaves would no longer legally, and I stress legally, be brought over to the United States. Thousands of enslaved individuals would continue to be smuggled into the country, and it resulted in increasing the importance of the domestic slave trade, and it increased the amounts that current slaves were worth in the country. After his presidency, Thomas Jefferson returned to Monticello. He also owned two other neighboring plantations. It is believed that over the course of his lifetime, 
Jefferson owned around 600 slaves. He first became a slave owner at the age of 21. Again, Jefferson is a man of contradictions. He refers to slavery as a moral depravity and yet felt that blacks were inferior and if and when slavery was abolished, he felt it needed to be abolished gradually and he had a possible plan for it. He felt that blacks and whites couldn't coexist peacefully together and that it would lead to a race war without end. We know so much about Jefferson's position on certain topics because Jefferson was an avid letter writer. He kept impeccable records about the plantation and copies of his letters through his invention called the polygraph. It is believed that he wrote over 19,000 letters in his lifetime. Much of what we know about the lives of those who were enslaved at Monticello came from those record books and various letters, including firsthand accounts of the son of Sally Hemings. If you go to Monticello.org, they have a wealth of information about slavery at Monticello and the surrounding farms that were owned by Jefferson. In 1923, when the property was purchased by the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, the home and Mulberry Row, which was the name of the slave quarters on the plantation, they were fixed and they remain today a testimony to both Jefferson and the hundreds of people who were kept there against their will. There are a list of names of individuals who were enslaved at Monticello. Some have descriptions, um, biographies of their lives, the type of work they did. It's also important to note that many of the names of those enslaved there are unknown. They are equally as important. Without the individuals enslaved at Monticello, the lifestyle of Jefferson, his family, even his great accomplishments would not have been possible. In a letter written by Jefferson, he wrote how he had realized that he earned a 4% increase on the birth of each child on the plantation. Recent studies show Jefferson was correct in that thinking. In the 1970s, economists found that enslaved black people were the second most valuable capital by the 1860s. Land was first. There was a hierarchy of slaves at Monticello and plantations like it. Growing wheat as the staple crop instead of tobacco required a variety of skilled laborers. Some were trained as millers, smiths, carpenters. Young male children would make nails, for example. The nails produced in two months, Jefferson noted, paid the entire year's worth of food. Young female children worked weaving and making cloth. Some slaves were trained as managers and oversaw the daily operations. On the top of the hierarchy were the household staff. They tended to be treated better, and by that we mean more food, finer clothing, better living conditions. This should not mislead you, though. These are still human beings being kept in bondage, uh, forced to remain a slave with physical punishments and the threat of physical punishments and the threat 
of being sold off far away and breaking up their families. Many letters mention a number of white overseers who were known for their cruel and you know, brutal punishments of those who didn't produce what was expected of them. Some letters to Jefferson discuss children being whipped because they were late for work. Once a lack of profit was noted, changes were made, and those changes often involved violence. The white Southern gentleman could only dedicate his life to other pursuits because of the labor force of slaves. The life of a white Southern gentleman was expensive, and Thomas Jefferson had expensive taste and often lived beyond his means. Thomas Jefferson lived well beyond his means and as a result amassed a great amount of debt. His personal debt was why he agreed to sell a majority of his personal library to Congress to help rebuild the contents of the Library of Congress after the Capitol was burned down by the British in the War of 1812. He owed over $100,000 at the time of his death. The majority of his possessions in Monticello were sold off, as were the majority of the slaves to pay his debts. The only slaves freed by Jefferson were the children of Sally Hemings. Sally Hemings had only agreed to accompany Jefferson back to Monticello when he left France if he agreed to free her children and that she and her descendants have better treatment. It was rumored from as early on as 1802 that Jefferson had a relationship with Sally Hemings. Sally Hemings's son refers to his mother as Jefferson's concubine. This was something Jefferson and his white descendants denied. In 1998, a DNA test showed that Jefferson most likely was the father of Sally Hemings's children. Like John Adams, Thomas Jefferson died on July 4, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. He was ill and in and out of consciousness for a few days prior to his death, consistently asking, if it was the 4th when he would awake. On the morning of the 4th, his grandson tapped him on the shoulder to alert him that it was indeed the 4th. He would die a few hours later. Jefferson designed his tombstone and had written his epitaph. Here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statue of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. He does not write how he was the Secretary of State. He doesn't write how he was the President of the United States. He knew other people, other men would hold those positions, but these were the things that he alone had done and that he was the most proud of. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.